This is Lou Hennies, and you're listening to the Famous Cat Chronicle. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Famous Cat Chronicle. This week's guest is a wonderful Illinois singer-songwriter by the name of Lou Hennies. She is a lady who makes not your typical folk Americana music. It's got a twist to it. She has a brand new EP out called Trial and Error that's self-released. One of her songs just speared me to the core. Some of those songs you listen to it, you go, oh my God, who is that? And you wait through four or five other songs to find out from the DJ who exactly... Uh, who sang it? And what song is it? And where can I get it? Lou is wonderful. We spent a wonderful three and a half hours speaking. I was able to boil it down to this podcast. I promise you there's more from Lou that we're going to hear not only on the Famous Cat Chronicle, but more music in general. Without further ado, I'd like to present to you Lou Hennies. have you been? Your bio seems to be deliberately vague and it mentions that you've had some time in Chicago but leaves the rest in the nebulous Midwestern roots and born in the Bible Belt. Yeah. How much of that do you want to let us know where you are now, where you came from, you know, what your experiences have been as far as at least geographically? Yeah, yeah, no, I'll tell you my whole story. It's I've been all over. Um, I Sounds like a Johnny Cash mo- song. I've been everywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> I spent most of my life, most of my life in Illinois. I was actually born in Indiana. My mom is from San Diego. My mom okay. grew, was born and grew up in San Diego. My dad grew was born and grew up in the suburbs. He was born and grew up in a town called Elgin, Illinois. I know Elgin. Which yeah. is, uh-huh, yeah, it's far where actually where, I, yep, that's where I actually live currently is okay. in Elgin. Jim Gaffigan was born in Elgin, Illinois. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, Take yeah, that definitely. world. But also, <laughs> but my dad, Rediscover Records is there in Elgin, too? Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yep. And the riverboat. And yep, that's right, uh, across yeah. the, for the street from where the riverboat currently is is where the historic Elgin Watch Factory was. It's not there anymore. Yeah, so Elgin is one of these, much like, like Geneva, St. Charles, it's one of these old industrial river towns mm-hmm. that existed independently of Chicago for a really long time. It's sort of bled into the suburbs now, but it's it's definitely got its own downtown and its own history. Oh, sure. So my dad grew up here. My grandparents were here. And then my dad joined the Navy and traveled the world and ended up in San Diego where he met my mom. And they were really, really young. I think my mom was 17 when they met. I'll let them tell you their life stories someday, but I'll right. just the, the background for me is that at the time that they met, they were both fundamentalist Baptists. They were both very highly, highly religious Christians, okay. Protestant Christians, Baptists. And so they eventually moved back to the Midwest. They moved to Indiana, and I was born in Indiana. My mom went to... Before I was born, my mom went to Baptist Bible College in Missouri, and my dad went to, well, I think it's called Harvest Bible College in Indiana. Okay. Then we kind of moved around a little bit, and I spent some time in Missouri. 
back to Illinois. We moved back out to California for a little bit. Back to Illinois. Again, my brother was born here in Illinois. And then as we got a little bit older, my parents got divorced. And then my dad moved to South Carolina. And then when I was in middle school, my mom moved to North Carolina. So I uh, spent some time in Charlotte. My dad's in Greenville. They're not, those are not super close to each other. Greenville's closer to like Asheville, North Carolina. My dad is still in Greenville, eventually Greenville. Eventually my mom and we moved back to Illinois and, and moved out to the out to the country. I'm using air quotes that nobody can see but you, but it's, <laughs> it is the country. It's DeKalb, Illinois. Most of my like conscious teenage years, middle school through now, let's say, I was bouncing between Illinois, South Carolina, and North Carolina. In Illinois, I mean the DeKalb area, which especially when I was in high school, which was, I'll just say... I will just say I graduated from high school 20 years ago. So when I was in high school, that area was particularly agricultural. It still is. It's a little bit less now than it was. But especially when I was out there, I mean, that is, I'm, this is no joke. That was farm. That was corn, corn and soybeans, corn, soybeans and pigs and some dairy cows. You know, kind of because of all of that, as soon as I graduated high school, I just made a beeline for Chicago. And so then I was in Chicago for many, many, many years. That's where most of my friends are. That's where all of my musical community pretty much is in Chicago. I was in Chicago on and off for, I think, like 13 years total. And then I moved back out to the country. I bought a house out in this really little town called Genoa. It's 5,000 people also near DeKalb. I left Genoa to move to tr- back to Charleston. I moved to move back to South Carolina. I lived in South Carolina for a little bit okay. in Charleston. Okay. And then back to Illinois again. When I moved back, I was in I was stay I moved back to Genoa for a couple of years. And at that time, my mom had bought a farm, like a little hobby farm, day farm, even further west in Illinois on the top of this hill and we had a horse and a pony and some sheep and grew a bunch of food and she started hosting weddings out there and so when I talk about like the rolling farmland of Illinois of the Midwest that's really what I'm kind of getting at like we we did we did the thing like I I have shoveled lots of poop I have cleaned up lots you can of swear animals on this blood podcast. if you want <laughs> um, to you can swear <laughs> i have processed chickens you know i've gotten my hands dirty so there's a yep. lot of that i know about by that time in my life i was clearly an adult but so my childhood was really formed there were a lot of my memories and a lot of the overarching themes of my childhood were very bible related okay um, my dad is still Still a part of the church in the South. So when I go visit him and talk to him, you know, that's that's still, those archetypes are still there. So when I talk about the Bible Belt of the South, that's I'm really in reference to my relationship with him and, and the time I spent in the Carolinas and, and also just like those really formative years of my childhood. Like I, you know, I wasn't allowed to wear pants, you know, I was like only allowed to wear skirts because girls wear skirts. I mean, we were those kind of people. Okay. Pretty much right up until the time that my parents got divorced and then things changed. <laughs> significantly for wow. me for all of us oh yeah oh um, definitely this is getting long but i've kind of been all over it but yeah so then i left genoa uh, so i ended up selling that house in 2017 and i moved back to the city i was living on the south side at 130th in a neighborhood called hegwish oh yeah when i got pregnant and had my son and his, you know i was living with his dad and his dad is still there still in that house and in October of 2019, I moved back to Elgin to be halfway between my son's father and my parents who are out in Sycamore. Okay. So it's a, it's about an hour from each. So I have a 
and you know, within a stone's throw. To me, an hour's drive is nothing. After all that back and forth, like, poof, that's nothing. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm about a stone's throw from from each of them, and that's just where I'm at for now. I don't really know what comes next. I'm kind of kind of feeling. I'm I'm content here for a little bit. I bought this house and it's been my haven through COVID. But I don't know. I feel like there's probably something on the horizon. I'm kind of feeling called back out to the to the country, back out to those farm fields. When I go there to visit them, it really feels that's home to me. You know, for all the years I spent in the city, that's always home. That's always been home to me. I was actually out there this week. My mom was watching my son while I was working on Tuesday, and I recently spent some time in Arkansas and Fayetteville. And you know, for all of the, <laughs> you know, for all of the narrative of being hillbillies and porch pickers down there, you know, and all the like folk music that comes out of the, you know, that that area of the country. You know, I was there. I was there. I was looking around. It's cute. There's some really like Bentonville's really cute and Fayetteville's really cute. But I was driving back into my hometown of Sycamore, and I was just like, man, you know, there's just. Sycamore walks the walk, you know, like it really, it really, like nothing looks, <laughs> nothing looks more like the opening scenes of Northern Exposure to me than Sycamore, Illinois. It's just, it's the oldest, cutest, just most genuine, sweetest little town. I'll probably find my way back there before too long. I'm trying not to count the time, I'm stuck at all. Damn red lights, and I'm using boys like chewing gum. But ain't a girl supposed to have her fun? Cause I sure do love falling in love. I sure do love falling in Extended play release, trial and error, that was Red Lights. You mentioned somewhere that you didn't always have the best time living in Chicago, specifically not liking the driving as being the inspiration for your song Red Lights. What did you like about Chicago? What did you not like about it? And what things about where you live now remind you that you are living where you're meant to be now? Oh, that's a good question. That's a really thoughtful question. I mean, the A number one, I can, this is not hard. The the A number one thing I hate the most about living in Chicago, or I, I, not hate, well, I mean, I didn't hate living in Chicago, but the thing I hated about living in Chicago was traffic, driving, like, right, just trying to get anywhere, just trying to get anywhere ever for anything is just a murder, like, <laughs> it's just the worst. At one point I was living in East Garfield Park. I lived there for about five years and I love that neighborhood and I love the people in that neighborhood. Um, but I was working at Northwestern University and just driving up and down Western Avenue. I mean, I just, I don't know. I mean, I suppose traffic can teach us a lesson, but I, I wasn't hearing it. <laughs> My blood was too busy boiling. Um, it teaches us patience. It. Yeah. It teaches that, patience and zen, I've noticed. Yeah, it could have. It yeah. could have, but it wasn't. I wasn't letting that lesson in at that time. <laughs> you know, it's just the it was just the worst. And and I and I'm it's no joke. I, you know, sitting at a red light on Logan Boulevard, just trying to get to somewhere. And and I used to just run away. Like on the weekends, I would just get out. I couldn't get out fast enough. I just like all I wanted to do was get to the highway and get back out west where I could like move and, and not even breathe. I could breathe just fine in in Chicago, but just move like that spaciousness 
you know, I'd have to like go through town to get to the damn highway. And, and no, I mean, no joke. I, I was sitting at a red light on Logan Boulevard thinking, I swear to God, if when I die, there's a saint that's like, you spent this many years of your life, like waiting for the lights to change. Like you spent 2.3 years of your life, you know, in dribs and drabs of two minutes at a time waiting for the damn light to change. I'm going to not be a very happy dead person. That was just absolutely the worst in the parking. Like I remember when I moved out to the country thinking what a beautiful concept a parking lot is. Like you go to, you go to the post office and you just pull in and park in a parking lot and walk in and it's easy. At one point I was really fond of telling people I'm just a parking lot person. I don't know what to tell you. I'm just a parking lot person. <laughs> but the, but Chicago is beautiful. I mean Chicago is Chicago has got its own identity and its own personality and and it's to to me it's you know everything's got its place. To me it's got the personality of like an adolescent. It's really raw and it's really scrappy and hungry and there's a lot of drive to be a lot of things. And sometimes those things are in conflict with each other, you know, Mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, a world-class city with world-class food and we're developing like the Fulton Market District until it looks like Disney World and it sort of loses all of its authenticity. That kind of sucks. But there's also all of these like really magnificent artists like doing house shows and home galleries and home libraries and, you know, community activism that happens there that's uh, unparalleled in in any other city. I don't see it in L.A. and I don't see it in New York, although I haven't spent as much time in New York as I spent in Chicago, obviously. It's a city full of these like beautiful, creative, loving people who support each other particularly in the arts and particularly particularly in visual arts like the painting community there is really really tight-knit and the folk arts like folk arts in general but also folk music like the old town school of folk music is the gem of folk music it's it's like a it's like a fluke it's like a I don't know. It's one of the most magical, wonderful communities of people I've ever known and been, had the pleasure to like study with and be a part of. I've taken guitar because lessons from there myself, so I know exactly there what is you're no talking. Pre- so you know, there is yes, no pretense. There is not a lick of judgment from other no. students. From te- I mean, there's hundreds of people who teach there. Not one of them has a shred of snobbery in them. No. In fact, the teacher that I had who taught me guitar as well, he, he was a bit of a hippie, you know, kind of a little bit of a weirdo, but in a good way. And he wasn't competitive. He was genuinely, when he would teach me how to fret things, chord things, he wasn't doing it in a way saying, I'm better than you, you have to listen to me. It's like, hey, check this out. It's going to make some really awesome sounds. And that's there, right? Like, that, yeah. like that's, that's, that's Chicago. That song is Bad Day from the Lou Hennies EP, Trial and Error. How and when did you get started as a musician? Oh, um, that is not really, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't really know the answer to that question. No? Well, I started playing what I would now call a fiddle. 
I started playing the viola in grade school in, in third grade. But I dropped it. I played it for two years, and then I dropped it, and then I played the oboe in band, and that I really sucked at that. Um, <laughs> I really thought I was gonna like it, and I really don't know what I was thinking, but I was, you know, a child, and I never really picked the violin or the viola back up. And then, you know, maybe like around twelve or thirteen, my mom bought me my first guitar, and I never really learned how to play it. I mean, I looked at it and. And wanted to play it, and it was just one of those, I don't know, man. It was just one of those, like, limiting beliefs. It was just one of those things that I wanted so badly. I wanted it so badly that I, I, like, couldn't risk trying and failing. I couldn't, it was like, I don't know, that was a thing that cool people did and not me, and I loved, I mean, ever since I was little, little, I loved music. I was a huge record collector. I worked at the record store. I just, you know, I Me like, too. <laughs> just want, you know, just want, went to all the shows. We used to go, I'm sure you were at some of them. We used to like go to these really loud shows at the Fireside Bowl. Oh, yeah. You know, and then when we were old enough, like at the Metro and, you know, and then when we were even older at like all the cool places, like I worked at the Empty Bottle for a bunch of years. That's a cool club. I love going and there. And I just, I mean, I just, my whole life, I mean, I worked for record labels. I, I did an internship at Bloodshot. I did an internship at a indie label called Flame Shovel. I just, I mean, I just love, I just love music. And I think because I love it so much, I was just wholly and fully intimidated by it. And maybe part of it was that I was intimidated. And maybe part of it, too, was that, like, sort of unconsciously I knew that if I learned how to do it, some of the magic would go away a little bit. Which it did, but not. The magic never fully goes away. And you never, you never stop learning stuff. So I had this guitar, and I learned a couple of chords in high school, and every couple of years, I'd pick it up and play, you know, G, C, and D. And then uh, around the time that I was 30, I guess, maybe, I actually took that son of a bitch down to, <laughs> down to Old Town School and said, I want to actually learn how to, how to do this. And I don't know what happened. I started taking it a little bit more seriously. And I started learning other chords, you know, some minor chords. I struggled but was determined to get that F chord down and still struggle with that one. But I a lot better than I used to be and but I think (laughs) when I was at Old Town I know I think I noticed for the first time that I could sing or that I could at least carry a tune and then when we would sing as like in a group I liked it and I and I I noticed other people noticing that I could sing and then I felt even more motivated to at least be able to accompany myself. And all I ever wanted to do was write songs. I've been writing poetry since I was 10. I be, you know, I could t- my whole entire high school career was sitting at IHOP smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee and writing shitty poetry, which actually <laughs> probably wasn't even that bad, to be honest <laughs> with you. The poetry that I used to write was probably pretty good. I was pretty angry. But I needed to be able to accompany myself if I was going to sing because I always had this thing, and I still do, and I, I hate to admit it, but I still do. I, I've always had like kind of a chip on my shoulder for singers, male or female, that sing for bands and don't play instruments. Like I always felt like lame, like cheating, like 
and like and then they have to like jump around because they're not actually doing anything else and like Mick Jagger bugs me like like making up the duck walk because he didn't actually I mean and he may actually even play an instrument I don't know but he didn't I don't know I just I, I was like no if you're gonna sing you have to at least be able to play a guitar too it's a hot so, take I, I can so, see where you're coming from yeah, I don't know. I just like it. Yeah, I don't know. It bothers me. And also, probably there's something in there too about like I think I can sing. I, th- I like I think I can sing, but I don't think I can sing well enough to justify only singing. <laughs> like, right. If I'm if I can do if I'm like three quarters of the way a decent singer and like sixty five percent of the way a decent guitar player, then the two of them together I can like are passable. But if I was just kind of like a half ass singer, I don't know. Then, uh, yeah, I was probably around that. Probably around then, I kind of started messing around with some some different like finger picking patterns, and that's when I really started to make a little bit of progress. And then a little bit of progress led to a lot more commitment. And so I wrote a couple of songs, and I liked them. You know, I I kind of went through a phase where I was writing a lot, a lot of songs, and but there were like three or four that I really liked, and I was really kind of surprised at what came out of me. And I felt like I this is what I want to do. If I can write three or four good songs, then I could write 30 or 40 good songs, you know, in time. And yeah, I mean, the seasons of my life kind of come and go. And when I was pregnant, I couldn't breathe. I had no no lung capacity. So I spent about six months not singing at all. And I remember it was about two months after my son was born, the first time that I actually was able to like carry a tune again. And it (laughs) felt so... Like I was so relieved that to to like be back there, and again, it kind of re, like re rebolstered my commitment to to the craft. And so, when we moved, when I moved in in October of two thousand nineteen, Jack, my son, was I guess about seven months old. There was a lot of time at home. Like I was feeling really grounded. I was feeling really not stuck. I mean, I really I love him and I love being with him. But there was just a lot of time when he was you know he'd go to bed around seven thirty, and I'd just kind of be home and I couldn't go out. And I couldn't do anything for six months before COVID. So I feel like I've been in this for a minute. And so I was just like, I kind of decided that could be really useful time for myself. Like his nap time during the day and and after bedtime, it it was time that I was going to be stuck at home anyway. And I was pretty sure that I could make something of it if I, if I committed, if I, if I made a commitment to it. And I did, I started making a commitment to practice all the songs I had written during his nap time and then to spend time in the evening trying to write new stuff. And I really hate when people say, oh, these songs just poured out of me because they don't, right? Like, it's work. Sometimes all of that work comes together all at once and it feels like things kind of just pour out of you. Um, But it really is the culmination of all of those years of stops and starts and all of the lessons that I took and all of the poetry I had been writing for all of those years. You know, and the and the practice and the work that went in, you know, the the twenty years of work that went into like crafting language, and the thirty years of listening to music and kind of training my ear and just just knowing what sounded right, even if I didn't know technically what that meant. But it did it did culminate in sort of an avalanche of songs kind of coming out all at once, and it, between the history of doing it and the and the opportunity of time kind of stuck at home, I wrote about ten or twelve songs, maybe twelve songs, you know, in between October of two thousand nineteen and June of twenty twenty through the pandemic, when I ran into a really good, really old friend of mine who I'd worked with at the Empty Bottle years and years ago. He also lives out in this area and he, I went to a city, 
a city council meeting. I had some things I wanted to say about the way that our police department was handling race relations, but also there was an incident here in my town where a woman was shot and killed by the by the police. <sighs> um, and, the, and it was never really addressed, or it wasn't addressed in a way that anybody felt was appropriate, or that a lot of people, including myself, felt was appropriate. Like a lack um, so of accountability? To, yeah, yeah. So I went to speak at a city council meeting about that in June during COVID, masked and, you know, socially distanced. And, but I kind of felt like it was something that I, I needed to do. And so when I got there, I was like, oh, my friend, my friend was actually running the sound for the city council meeting. And so we were kind of catching up for a little bit. And he told me that he had just bought the studio space in February. And I said, well, you know, he and I had played in a band. So he knew some of the older songs he's a sound engineer obviously and so I knew that he could record him and he said well I have the studio space and I think we could do it really safely and I was like uh, do you want to make a record and he was like yeah <laughs> yeah let's make a record <laughs> so I took some of those old songs that I've been playing for a long time and a bunch of the new ones we started in August and we recorded 12 12 songs wow. um, there's a lot more and we'll probably do some more recording in the future here but trying to do it safely and trying to like work with other and we worked with two different drummers over the course of a couple of months and then him doing the mixing of them it it took a long time you know and and he was basically donating his time to me i mean he felt like he heard oh, something wow. in these songs that he be, that he believed in and he had the space and he had the te- the you know the expertise to do it he basically did it in exchange for producer credits and yeah. he did the electric guitar work on it too and plug time what's what's the studio who's the yeah. the guy if yeah, so his yeah, yeah, please. And I'm, I'm trying to like tell everybody about him because this is really it, none of this would have happened without him. Um his name is Eric Block. Okay. And he How's um, that spelled? It's E, e- <laughs> well, No, Eric you, uh, Eric is fine. How do you spell? I, was, I was thinking Eric, more Block cuz Eric with a, a C. Okay. And and Block is B L O C K. Okay, fair enough. And his studio is Rec Room Studios in Des Plaines, Illinois. Okay. And he's amazing. I mean, he's amazing. He produced, you know, there there are 12 songs. There will be more releases this year. I woke up this morning I remembered again That you That's an unreleased song from Lou Hanai's called Sorry Baby. Ultimately, I decided to to let them out a little bit at a time because we're living in a weird world where people don't really listen to whole records. And the only way to really get attention is to kind of be constantly making noise. So I decided to release them in three phases instead of in one as one record. That makes um, sense. But yeah, but there's about there's about 10 more that need to get recorded. Wow. Thomas and Dolby then, did it that way when he released his album Map of the Floating City and I believe 
that Billy Corgan did as well when he you know, resurrected Smashing Pumpkins, the album that eventually I think became Oceana oh, yeah. was released in chunks. And Ben Folds has done that as well too. Yeah, and especially as like a new artist. I had a couple I had a couple of ideas, but I was I was pretty anxious to just get something out. And and to be honest with you, I probably would have put out a much lesser product because I was really sort of like chomping at the bit to I've been you know, I've been working on this for like I said, these songs, some of these songs are, you know, five or six years old. And I was really starting to feel like it's, it's time. Like it's, it's really time to like birth this baby. I'm really glad that I waited and I'm really glad we did it the way that we did it. But I did know that as a first release, it probably wasn't going to turn too many heads. Like they're good songs. I'm proud of them. I like them. I like listening to them. I think other people seem to really like them, but there's nothing, at least in these 12, there's nothing like earth shattering there's nothing that i think like as a first release was gonna like drop any jaws you you know i i think like again i think they're great i think they belong on every single playlist but i wasn't expecting rolling stone to be like this ep came out you know so i just kind of wanted to get it out and sort of start to do it the way that i kind of have always known that i would do it which is to just just build it one fan at a time let it sink in and let it speak to people and let the people it speaks to find me. I know it's not going to be for everybody. That's okay. I think the people that like it, love it. And the people that don't like it, just don't like it. And that's okay. I understand. I respect what you said there. And I respectfully differ from one of your self-assessments, but we'll get to that later okay. in due time okay. when it, okay. when it makes sense on the question sheet. Sure. Now you're stealing dreams. Like make-believe invincible tin soldiers And your dirty talk is cheap but I don't mind I can't trust you with a dollar Ain't got no affairs in order I just love your filthy guts And you're beginning hard that's another unreleased Lou Hennai song called Love Your Filthy Guts in Your Hooligan Heart. Is the songwriting process for you an easy one or does it take a long time? And then related to that, has it gotten easier now that you've done it for a while? Does the songwriting process for you become easier the more you do it? Do you learn shortcuts or hacks? Mm-hmm. Um, no, it does not become easier. No. So, so my process is, I actually do have kind of a, not a strict process, but I do have a pretty defined, well-defined process. And it starts with mining, like mining my own thoughts or, or capturing, well, I guess it starts with paying attention to my own, my own thoughts. And there is a little bit of like deliberate consciousness that goes, that goes along with that the way I came to realize that that's what I needed to do is because I thought the process would be, okay, I have two hours or I have two days or I have whatever, some block of time. And I really want to, I really want to write a song to, you know, with this block of time. And so, so here it is, it's here. And I, here's, I have my guitar and a cup of coffee and a, you know, some paper and a pen and I'm, I'm going to sit down and write a song and like that's the surest way for me to not write a song. Like I'm ready. <laughs> it's scheduled. I got all the time in the world to do it and all of the pieces are in place and nothing is coming. 
And I, it's like what we used to call, I'm sure you're familiar with the phenomenon, but we used to call it record store phenomenon. Like I'm walking around my life all day long and I'm like, Oh, I need to buy that record. And they, Oh, I can't wait to get my hands on this record and blah, blah, blah. And you go to the record store and you're like, I can't for the life of me remember anything that I said that I was interested in buying. Yes. And the same thing happens when, for me, when I sit down to write a song, I'm like, okay, I'm ready. And where did all of those thoughts go? Where did all those like brilliant questions go? So I, I learned pretty quick that I needed to write them down when they came or, or collect them or mine them when they arose naturally. So I have notebooks and notebooks and notebooks full of weird quips and questions and thoughts. And I do a lot of walking. I'm a big, I take a lot of walks, especially when the weather's nice. And I notice things will kind of come to mind if I'm walking or driving, if I'm moving, you know, I'll be like, oh yeah, that's a really interesting phrase or a really interesting way to to say that or think of that. So over the last couple, you know, I don't know, five or 10 years, it's, it's really turned more into my phone. I kind of keep things in notes in my phone, but I still have a lot of notebooks, but they're mostly empty <laughs> these days. <laughs> so yeah, I just have like notes in my phone of like interesting things as they come up. And then the other thing I do, I started paying attention to a couple years ago is like when melodies arise when melodies arise in my head and sometimes it's like, oh, I'm humming somebody else's song, but I'm humming, I've hummed it for so long it's turned into its own thing or I've started to replace notes or I've started to kind of like play, play with somebody else's melody until it's no longer recognizable as, as their melody. Or I'm just humming another melody. I'm making a sandwich for my kid and I'm doing the thing my dad did when I was little, which is where I'm like singing what I'm doing and I'm like, oh, actually that doesn't sound that bad. And again, I pull out my phone and I pull out the voice recorder and I and I, I hum, you know, melodies into my voice recorder. And then that also happens a lot when I'm falling asleep at night, which is the most annoying time <laughs> because you're like, uh, but OK, or, you know, or, or whatever. And I grab it off the side of the table and I hum the stupid melody. Um so then when I do have time to sit down and write a song, I start kind of like an archivist, kind of like a, you know, almost like an anthropologist. I start going through field notes and I start looking, listening to the hummings, listening to the recordings of hummings and looking at some of the things I have jotted down. And a lot of times those those words are incoherent. They make, I mean, they don't go together. They don't make any sense together. But I'll think... You know, I have a couple of questions I need to answer. Like, is there something I need to say right now? Is there something that's been on my mind or been on my chest that I need to get off my chest? And if so, what is it? And what, you know, which of these phrases can I use to say that? Or is there a story that I want to tell? Or is there a message I want to get to a a person or a group of people? And then I kind of start playing. And I kind of do this like weird boomerang thing where I'm like, play hum think write play hum think like get out a rhyming dictionary play hum think write and there's a lot of pacing for me that happens like i must be a very kinetic creator because like i said i i think of these things when i'm walking and driving and when i'm writing songs i'm usually pacing i actually over the winter bought a <laughs> like a little trampoline so if i'm writing songs i'll like i'll be like jumping on the trampoline like thinking and and hammering out like tempo and stuff and yeah, sometimes it goes pretty smoothly. Sometimes it kind of like kind of just makes sense. And or sometimes like one verse will just kind of come together really fast. And then I'm like, now what do I do for the next two verses? And usually 
again, so it's like, right, the culmination of years of thinking in a certain way and years of thoughts and collecting thoughts, like, they may all come together in a day. Usually they come together in a day. But it takes a lot of, like, it takes a lot of breathing and a lot of pacing and a lot of, like, just kind of being patient for it. And the other thing that kind of happens, and this is, like, the thing that songwriters, I think, are always kind of alluding to, but we none of, none of us really know how to d- describe it. Tom Petty called it, like, looking into the light but not looking too closely at it. You know, and we, we talk about it like it's, like, oh, messages are coming from somewhere else and we're downloading these these messages. It's because it's such a bizarre it's such a bizarre half meditative state that we're in when these things kind of come together. And for me, it's like, it's really similar to the feeling that you get when you like cross your eyes or unfocus on something, or you kind of like focus on a, a point in front of what you're actually looking at. And you see two of the thing. It feels like that, but it's in my mind. Like there's a thought, there's a feeling and I have to not look too closely at it. I have to kind of let it all blur and then just kind of wait for something to pop up in, in in clarity. And sometimes that takes a lot of time. And sometimes it, it happens pretty fast. Usually, if I have a full day, I can get it together. Sometimes it takes two or three. But once I get it to a point where it's like, I have a melody, I may even have a harmony, and I have a chorus, sometimes, half the time I don't even write choruses, I just will write a bunch of verses. And I'm like, that's good enough. A song is a song. Like, it can be three chords on repeat and that's fine if you have something that you want to say and if it's if it sounds pretty like who's to say like brian eno made songs like that that i love so who's to say i can't just like drone on about whatever i want to talk about so then i will take that whole thing i will write it down by hand not on my phone not like in a notebook with ink because i won't remember it i have to like write all of the verses down a lot of times it's over three or four pages i get it all on one page in order and then I will do one more rough draft where I just sing through the whole thing into my phone, into the voice memos so that I have it. And then I have to walk away for at least a day, sometimes more. Then I come back and listen to it to try to remember the melody because I usually will have forgotten it. And then I will start actually like drilling it. Like I will play it three or four times a day for several, several days and it'll change, you know, like as I'm playing it, once I'm no longer trying to like create something, (laughs) I'll start hearing little pockets or I'll start hearing like different words or like, oh, why didn't I write it this way? It'll change a little bit over the next couple of weeks. And then I usually put it on Instagram. Because that like forces me to sort of commit to a version of it. And also I'm usually pretty proud of it. And I'm like, hey, everybody, nobody is really paying attention, but it's there, right? It's like this, again, it's like an archive. To me, it's like, it goes from these little like, like you call them seeds, these little like seed melodies or seed phrases that actually like writing the song is the hard part. It's really foggy and fuzzy. And then it kind of gets like refined a little bit and then it goes into Instagram. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, but no, I don't think it gets easier (laughs) ever. Taken from Instagram, that's a Lou Hennai's song called Red Flags, currently unreleased. 
Your music seems to convey that you've had quite a bit of life experience, that you've seen a lot and lived a lot. And based on what you've told me, it sounds like a, I was right. But for the most part, that in your music doesn't usually translate into bitterness or jadedness. You seem to have a certain optimism in the face of these things. And oftentimes, lyrically and musically, I hear a sense of wonder. What's your secret to not letting life grind you down and you know, answer that however you want to. Uh, <laughs> or say, I, uh, or say, click next question. Too no, big. I love, I love <laughs> this question. I mean, I think, I think before I answer it, I just, um, <laughs> before I answer it, I want to just take a second to say thank you. You're welcome. Um, that, that is such a, to me, such a compliment that you would observe that and that you would, that you would, see that pick up on that feel that in in the music um and you know maybe hopefully also in talking to me tonight um but that in and of itself right the fact that i find that to be a compliment is kind of the answer to the question too right like that's what i value i mean that that's what's important to me that's there have been moments in my life several not every day maybe not even every year um, but several points in my life where situations arose, circumstances aligned in such a way that felt very magical, that felt very miraculous, that felt like like against all odds, against everything that I believed or, or have been told, something really, really marvelous happened to and for me. And it, they've happened enough They've happened often enough that I believe that they will continue and they have happened seldomly enough that I'm, I keep going, right? That I, that that I'm, that I keep pushing myself and I keep driving myself towards this next thing. Like they've happened often enough that I don't worry too much about what it means to like just get up and go to work every day, but they've happened seldomly enough that I'm not necessarily expecting a miracle every day of my life. And I also have found that generally when these like really, even if they're unexpected, but like really, really wonderful things have happened for for me or to me, it feels magical. It feels like the universe is sort of reorganizing itself to my benefit. And I think it probably is. I think that probably is true. But there's always been this like catalyst, this like tiny spark of action that I had to take, whether it was a leap of faith or to put myself out there or to try something new or to make myself vulnerable or to say, you know, to be the first person to say I love you or whatever. There was something I had to do. And then the reward back at me was immeasurable. So that that's been my experience with the world around me. Now, because that's my attitude, perhaps that has informed my experience, you know, maybe because that's my attitude, that's what's causing me to have an experience of such like magical thing. I mean, I'm kind of a magical thinker. I've always, I've always been, even since I was a little kid. So maybe because, maybe it's just confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. Like maybe because I'm expecting to see some like crazy shit. I see, I've seen some crazy shit. I mean, some of it's been pretty rough. Some of Mm -hmm. it's been pretty dark, but some of it's also been like, really the opposite of dark. I mean, I guess that's light, but just really like awe-inspiring and transcendent. I mean, enough enough for me to think there's more going on than we can really quite wrap our heads around at any given time. Do you feel that my impression is close to your own truth? I mean, did that did I describe the way you would self-characterize? Yeah, yes. 
Absolutely. And I'm glad that that's coming through. I'm, I'm glad that that's, I, I think there's something about the essence of each of us that's going to come through no matter how much we think we try to hide it or no matter how much we think we try to present it or hide it. Like who we are is just going to come through what anything that we do. And, but yes, I think, I think that is an accurate assessment in terms of like a sense of wonder. I mean, I feel like I kind of just talked about that, but there's something else in here I want to talk about. I'm not even really sure how it relates to your question, but I'm feeling really like, I'm feeling really pulled to say this thing. And so I'm just going to say it. Please. You know, a couple, a couple of years ago, about five years ago, maybe a little bit more now, um, I got to a point in my life where I was really, really, really unhappy and I was really, I mean, depressed for sure, but also just like really angry and just really frustrated and really like, I don't think it's uncommon for people in their early thirties to come to a place where they do, they've like pushed all the buttons. They've, they've like checked all the boxes that society has told them to check and they find that they're not fulfilled. And then they're like out of options. Like you get the degree, you buy the house, you get the car, you get married. And all of a sudden you're like, I, the, none of this is what I thought it was going to be. Like some of it's cool. Some of it sucks, but none of it is like, I don't feel like I crossed the finish line and I was getting really, really, really discouraged just in general. And that level of discouragement led to a series of transformations that kind of brought me to some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier, some, some more like meditation and some more spiritual books really that I started reading. What I found to be the most transformative, transcendent lesson in my life Let me think about how I want to say this for a second. What came out of that time, what came out of that discouraging time and the subsequent like research that I started to do was an underlying truth for me, what I believe to be an underlying truth for everybody, but it is certainly for me. And that is how, again, let me think about how I want to say this. The underlying truth that I think, uh, yeah, this is a weird thing to talk about, but I feel like, I feel like I'm being asked to, so I just need to. What I learned as a result of that is that the only thing that can keep me going is a sense of forgiveness for everybody, and I mean everybody, but not for everybody. I like I guess what I'm saying is what I learned is that I needed to learn how to forgive everybody for myself. Does that include self-forgiveness for any yeah. time that you feel that you missed the mark for whatever reason? Y- yes. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot more. Part of what makes this so difficult to talk about is that it's not that simple. It's really, really simple, but it's not that easy because life happens. Right. Right. So part of what you have, part of the challenge in forgiving people and learning how to love people unconditionally is freaking remembering to do it. You know, like forgiving somebody and loving somebody is easy remembering to do it when you're like you know juggling the reality of life mm-hmm. you know that's a little bit different but there is and 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 it took you know i i kind of went through this thing five years ago where i learned this and i'm kind of going through a thing now where i'm remembering it there were some you know there were some things that happened in the middle and i was kind of like getting confused and i think we all were right like we all had the worst year of our lives like there's no nobody had the best year of their life last year nobody Mm. did but in certain ways like you said it's forced us all to reassess and sometimes in that reassessment you find i've found for myself the things that mean the most to me that i cherish the most 
and I cling to them and I draw joy from those. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not just the pandemic, right? It's, I mean, obviously for the rest of our lives, when we talk about this past year, we're going to talk about a pandemic and wildfires and, you know, racial uprising and a contentious election and, and probably and murder hornets, like all kinds of things I'm not even remembering because those first four were so huge. But like when I talk about forgiveness, when I talk about what I need to stay, to remain somewhat optimistic and to stay in a, or to, to reconnect to that sense of wonder that I know sustains me, I mean all of them. There are some names I don't even want to say. But I mean people who were recently convicted of murdering other people. Like, I have to find a way to forgive them. And that doesn't mean that what they did is okay. That doesn't mean that I excuse what they did. The way I've heard it phrased, I think it was Ram Dass who talked about this. Like, uh, or some, or he said, somebody said, do what you do with that being. Incarcerate that being if you have to, but never put them out of your heart. Wow. I've noticed... When it comes to forgiveness, it really is one of those gifts of the soul where if somebody has done you wrong or if somebody has done wrong writ large, if by some miracle or strength of character, you can find it within yourself to forgive that person the wrongs that they have done, not forget about them, not ever condone them or not ever give that person a pass. But if you're able to forgive them, you have set your own soul free. Because yeah. if you hold on to that negativity, it does start to eat away at you. Yeah. 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 And I think, if I may, like, if you would if you would entertain me insofar as to go off the deep end with me here for a second, I, go for I will it. be happy to tell you that, I mean, what I truly believe at the, at my, at the fundamental core of myself is that... <laughs> is that we are all connected. And and I would say not only are we all connected, we are all representations of the same thing, of the oh, same sure. divine light, of the same divine love. We are all reflections of that same divine light and love. So the act of forgiveness, it's not even forgiving another. It's recognizing that there is no other. Oh, wow. That's deep that each we're playing a game here right we're all in these bodies and we're playing this game here but we're all connected so i i first have to recognize that and then i have to love that not the thing you did but the fact that you and i are are one and it, and so when you ask about self forgiveness like it could be it can be no other way it has to be it's both it has to be both Wow. Does that make sense? I never... perfect. No, perfect sense. Okay. <laughs> but it's a it's a layer of thinking beyond ourselves that a lot of us, self included, don't always think at that level of universality. Sure. And maybe we should be a little more conscious of that. You were aware of the literal translation of the word namaste, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The divine. Exactly. The way I understand it, and correct me if I'm saying it wrong, is the divine spark within me recognizes and celebrates the divine spark within you. Yeah. And yeah. And as, yeah. And that's. I mean, so it's it's been turned into a cliche, you know, that it's one of these things that people like to mock and and put on T-shirts and memes and stuff. But at the deepest level of what that word means. It's there. It's 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 like you said, it's recognizing that nobody, whether or not they even believe themselves in the presence of a divine force beyond ourselves, 
doesn't matter. It's those of us who are people of faith recognize that life force that connects us all. Whether you right. want to call it God, whether you believe God doesn't exist, doesn't change the fact that we all have, like you said, something that connects us. Right. Right. And that doesn't mean that I'm not furious with Derek Chauvin, right? That right. doesn't mean <laughs> to put that a I'm name not, on it. <laughs> yeah, the name that I said I wouldn't say. <laughs> that doesn't mean that I'm not disgusted by a system that would culminate in this level of power struggle that not only did an innocent man die at the hands of another man, not only was he not only was George Floyd murdered, but Derek Chauvin murdered him. Right. That's a human being who experienced the act of murdering another person and then being convicted for that murder. I'm furious about all of it. I don't think that I'm alone. I think most of the country feels this way, that the conviction was right and just and needed to be carried out. What I'm saying is that for me to have any peace, I need to recognize that there are layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers in even just that one person. And I can be furious and disgusted in all of those layers as long as I understand that underneath there's this tiny little spark of humanity in there that we share in common and I have to love that just that spark there's a very 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 common mantra in Tibetan Buddhism that's um I'm not gonna chant it because it's weird and it freaks my kid out when I chant but it's um (laughs) Om Mani Padme Hum I think Om Mani Padme Hum and Om meaning the one, the, all of us, the the great one. And Mani is that spark or that seed or that gem. It's like, it's like a jewel. And Padme is the lotus and Hum is the center, right? So it's like connecting to that tiny little center in the middle of every lotus that we all share in common. That's a really long answer to say, like, that's how I maintain my sense of wonder. I've said this before. I've said, I, I think I've written it down and I think I've said it and I think it's been taken out of context in the past, but when I talk about like finding the beauty and the brutality, I don't mean that I think brutality is cool. Police brutality is one of my like pet causes, pet like issues, but in the brutality of life, in the brutality of like the way that we kind of bump up against each other and hurt each other and love each other and heal each other and all of the, you know, all of the ways that human beings interact with each other, that forgiveness, that unconditional love, that like seeing that in another person Like, here's what I'm saying. If I can do that for that motherfucker, I can look at my friend who kind of pissed me off last week or my coworker who I think is really stupid or annoying and find a way to love them for being a human, for being a human being. That provides me a sense of wonder. It's actually pretty selfish. It's actually pretty self-motivated philosophy. But I'm glad it comes out in the music. I think it's, I think that's a... I have a lot of I have a lot of desire to share that and to inspire that in other people. Well I see how the years just cut you down. You knock yourself over with a feather. But the needles that I so laid you now are the silver sutures tying us together. Harder than 
taking off her Instagram. That's Lou Hennies singing her song, Silver Sutures. The song that mesmerizes me of yours is Boo to Ghosts. It has the obvious folky elements to it, but the ethereal noises just take it to a whole new supernatural level. The fact that your vocals are sort of mixed to be a little echoey and almost obscured keep me coming back to try to listen to the lyrics and try to figure out what you're saying is. It's not so much a spooky song, but it does tap into the sense of wonder about a lot of things that doesn't usually come across our minds on a daily basis. What does that song mean to you to the point that you want to pull the curtain back? I've spoken to other artists and they're saying, well, I don't like to talk too much about my songs because X, Y, Z, and they're usually all good reasons, but I guess what inspired you to write it, whose idea, and then related to that, whose idea was the arrangement of the stereo version with the synthesizers and the ethereal elements in the mix as they are? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that last part. And if you hadn't, I would have brought it up anyway. Because, yeah, so I wrote that it. That song like I it. just slams me. I just got to say it. Oh, it, good, good, good. Utter, utterly fanboy. That That song, I heard it on the Razor and Die radio show on WLUW. Yeah. And uh, Di is a really close friend of mine. And she played that song. She hadn't even backsold it yet. I'm like, what is that song? And she let me know. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, it, so, that's so awesome. I'm so glad that you like Like you said, you, the songs don't always land. That one landed with me big time. <laughs> cool. Cool, cool, cool. That is a total collaborative effort. You know, I wrote that song the way I write all songs, which is on an acoustic guitar pacing around in my house. I have a terrible habit of not practicing into a microphone, and then I'm really lousy when it comes time to use a microphone. And I also don't really have good mic technique because I just project, I just sing like I'm singing, you know, I don't know, in an alley. And then when it's, when it's like, when I'm amplified, I'm like, oh, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do this without just like using my diaphragm. And I think you can hear that in, in the record too, right? Like it feels a little restrained and I, and I think that's why, cause I'm just like, I'm not great with a microphone, but that I wrote in an acoustic guitar, fin- doing a finger picking, the finger picking that you can hear in it. Which, by the way, um, I, I have to compliment your finger picking. I, as oh, a guitarist thanks. myself, that's a, a skill that I do not have. And, oh, thank you. And, um, is it is it played on a, a like a resonator, like a dobro guitar? It doesn't sound like a standard regular guitar. It sounds it's like not either a nylon string guitar or, like I said, a dobro. No, it's actually on. Well, it's funny. Eric and I talked about it after the fact, and he's like, "That was the right guitar for the song." I have like a three-quarter scale recording king, like practice guitar. It's not, okay. it's steel strings, but it's just like a really cheap guitar. It just kind of yeah. sounds tinny and cheap. But most of that record was recorded on my Gibson, the Gibson J45, and the thing is massive. And mm-hmm. and I'm still, I've had it for a couple of years, and I love it, and it's beautiful, and it looks really pretty, and it sounds really pretty. But it's kind of a beast to like manhandle and so when i'm just tired or i'm just feeling like i can't get that f a lot of times i'll pull out the little guy because it makes me feel like i don't even know it makes me feel like stevie ray vaughn because i'm like oh suddenly i can play this guitar <laughs> it's more facile um, it's easier for like you to, to ingmar what's what's ingmar melmstein or something anyway um, ingve melmstein yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like suddenly i'm like oh, look what i can do so I brought all of them. I brought all the guitars and, and yeah, I don't know. I just, we picked that one up and when we were recording it, we, I don't remember why we ended up doing it the way we did it, but it's the only song. Well, Bad Day we ended up doing live with Sarah, but Buddha Ghost we ended up doing live too in a totally different, on a totally different day with Eric Molly, a totally different drummer. And for some reason we decided to do it live and 
I think because he wanted to do the drums so sparsely, it didn't really make sense for us to do drum tracks separately. So I went into the isolation booth and did the vocals and the guitar parts while Eric Molly was doing the drum parts. Were they at the um, same mic or were they mic'd separately? mic separately and we were in different rooms got it and i think eric block always knew that he wanted to take it to that sort of that kind of atmospheric level and and i don't know if you're familiar with some of his work he's done a project called veloce and he's also done a project called sick gazelle and uh you know that drone atmosphere thing like that is really his wheelhouse he does that really really very well and when i played boo for him for the first time a couple of years ago i think he knew right away like literally we were doing some demos one day at his in his house in his recording studio in his in his home and i said you know i'm gonna do this song called boo to ghost and he just laughed at me he was like are you writing a children's book and i said would you just shut up and listen to it <laughs> and he was like fine and he just immediately was like we need to do something with it this is a really interesting song and i think part of it is i actually don't even know what key it's in it's in a weird key when he was trying to figure out like a guitar part this past year when we were in the studio he was like where are you going and i I think it actually goes from A to A sharp. If I'm not mistaken, I think it oh, goes wow. from A to A sharp. And he just looked at me and he was like, who does that? Like, <laughs> well, who writes Lou a Hennes song does, yeah. that goes, you know, from A to A sharp or whatever? <laughs> and I was like, well, in my mind, it's capoed mm-hmm. and it goes from F to E minor. Like, that's yeah. not that crazy. Uh, or yeah, it goes yeah. from A to A sharp minor. That's what it does. Okay. You know, so whatever. So so total, total, total collaboration with him on the atmosphere part. He did a lot of that drone and the synth stuff later, but it was also a collaboration with me and Eric Molly because we did, you know, we tracked it live. The song itself, I don't mind talking about this one. This one, it's got a really special place. And I don't think me telling the story of it really takes away from what other people can take out of it because I think it's a pretty universal feeling. When I met my son's father, we were first starting to date it, the, I, I wrote it when we f- were first starting to date and it really kind of came to me in, you know, when you meet somebody and you really, really like them and oh, you're yeah. spending a lot of time together and you're, ta- and you're like, you're telling all of your stories for the first time and they're just like riveted and you're just riveted and like at the time you're probably drinking too much because you just don't <laughs> want to go to bed and you want to like, yeah. you know, hang out three days in a row. And so you're like nervous and you're drinking three days in a row and you're staying up super late and like you do all the things you know you're not supposed to do but you're doing it because it's fun and you're doing it together and you're like staying up late and smoking cigarettes and drinking and you know I don't smoke anymore but like let's stay up until three o'clock in the morning smoking and drinking wine and like talking you know talking 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 and then you know and then you go to bed and then that part's fun too and you know you get to like examine each other and, and explore each other physically and that's that's great and so by the time you finally fall asleep it's like you're not even on earth anymore, you know? And it's like, if you stay awake for any length of time in that twilight, it is the wildest, weirdest, most amazing, bizarre feeling in the world when you're falling in love and you're exhausted and you're half drunk and you're talked out and you're just like listening to somebody breathe and you're, happy like you're not even happy it's so happy it's not even you're not even happy you're just like content you're satisfied but you're also like strung the fuck out like you're just you're tired and you're yeah and you're just strung out 
and you know all of your little neurotransmitters are like firing and and you're kind of thinking about like all the shit you've been blown off because you're so into this like situation and that's where we were and we were there for a couple of months and when he would fall asleep he you know he always fell asleep before me and he would like his his breathing would change and he would start kind of doing this like I hope this isn't embarrassing to him. I didn't tell you his name, but um, I don't think he knows it's about him. We've talked about it, but, (laughs) and he knows he does this. So um, especially when he, when he was drinking, when he would fall asleep, his breathing would change and he would start to kind of do this like, and, and I was half asleep and I, it sounded like he was saying boo and I was like, and I just thought like this person is like going to scare, you know, this person is going to scare all my ghosts away. This person is going to like learn me and just, he's going to be a bigger ghost than the other ghosts and he's going to scare all the ghosts away. And I was laying there one night and, and just like weird imagery started coming to me and weird thoughts started, started coming to me. And I, you know, when I finally got them all down, you know, it, it it makes sense that you could, that the, that the, 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 the sound of the song sort of obscures them because it really is just this like weird dreamscape of being, of, of what it feels like the crazy, crazy making feeling of falling in love and, and nothing really makes sense, but it's all really pretty. And, and, you know, ultimately like this boy is going to whisper Buddha to ghosts. And, um, that's, you know, the song, the song was born the song is lives wow inside out the tanks on empty in the mirror that means nothing heartbeats float and step by to ghosts it's funny before i knew all that i knew that the images that you're conjured in the verses are very surreal and abstract and you know add to the adds to the supernatural feeling of it but the only part that's really intelligible is the chorus line and the boy whispers boo to ghosts and it reminded me of something my parents taught me they have this expression that whenever you look at an infant just looking around the room discovering things taking it all in sometimes smiling. My parents would say that the child is watching the angels flying around the room. It's an incredible concept to think about that an infant's mind is so pure, so unblemished that they have these special powers to be able to see angels that the rest of us can't see and that it's an ability that it's only temporary. Have you ever heard that expression at all? Yeah, yeah, I have. And yeah, uh, I wondered if, if that factored into Boo writing Boo to Ghosts because I, I imagine like whether it's your own child or any child, 
just being able to see angels, ghosts, whatever that the rest of us can't see. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't, I actually wrote that one before, you know, before we got pregnant, but I do ask him all the time, you know, he's just old enough now to, to really start to be like conversational, barely, but I'm, I'm hoping that he's young enough. I do ask him sometimes like, is there anybody else here with us? Or I'll ask him, you know, do you remember anything from before you were Jack? Do you remember being a grown up? you know, and and he always says no, like like he doesn't seem to know what I'm talking about, uh-huh. and so I'm just kind of like, okay, that's fine. I'm not gonna, you know, I don't want to. Not gonna um, press. <laughs> yeah, and I I don't want to give him the impression that the the answer is supposed to be us. I don't want him to make something up. I just want right. to sort of invite him to say if he has something to say. Right. But yeah, I mean, I love the idea of it. I love the idea that yeah, that a child is so pure. I mean, I think we're all that pure, but that their mind just hasn't Im- imprinted yet. That at that point, there are no blocks that have been put up yet. It would be nice to think that, like, we could deconstruct those and get back to that place. I don't know if it's possible. I don't know. Robert Anton Wilson certainly thought it was possible, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I could do it. But yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's all like, yeah, dreamy, dream imagery. There, I think I did. I did eventually send you the lyrics. Yes, I did, and I saw them. I didn't realize they were on Bandcamp. I, when I got it, I got it from your website, and this is not anything you were obliged to do for the rest of us. But sometimes on an MP3 file, well, you sent them in WAV file, so it would have been irrelevant. When you get music, sometimes from the larger vendors, they come with the option to have lyrics in one of the subtexts. That's always a nice little bonus. Then at the end, you got people like Elvis Costello, who deliberately wouldn't include lyrics for a long time. His explanation was he didn't think that the lyrics could stand alone on their own as poetry. He either downplayed his own lyrics or the value of them taken separately from the context of the song for which they serve. That was the reason he gave for not wanting to include lyrics in those first few albums. And then he said he finally kind of was dragged kicking and screaming into it for his fifth album, I believe, Imperial Bedroom. And at that time, he said, I put the lyrics in one big block like like you're reading a telegram you know it's kind of like okay here's your lyrics you figure them out so for me as a consumer of music as a super fan it's fun to have those lyrics at your fingertips like if you're on your phone you're like and you're at a point where you're not driving and you can actually read the lyrics it's like what are they saying and then have that luxury to push the little lyric button on your phone and say oh that's what they're saying yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got to I got to figure that out. To be honest with you, well, a couple of things. The Elvis Costello thing is interesting. Like I remember in middle school or whatever, I'm buying my first records, buying my first like Green Day and Everclear and there's this band called well, at the time they were called The Refreshments. But now oh, yeah. Roger, I interviewed them. Roger once. Klein and the Peacemakers. Oh my god. I interviewed them. Yeah. Still to this day that is one of my favorite bands. Roger Klein and the Peace. I still love that band. They're no longer um, known as The Refreshments. Mm-mm, no, Fizzy, Roger fuzzy, and big and buzzy. Yeah, isn't that record is so good? I bought that record. It is, yeah. And it's still great. But I remember like reading liner notes, reading lyrics when I was a kid and kind of thinking the same thing. Like when you read these, they sound dumb. But when you hear <laughs> like thinking that's such a weird phenomenon, like to read these words makes them sound really trite. But when there's music behind them, they're so, so much more powerful. Not that that's influenced whether I've included them in mine or not. But it's interesting that he would say that because I've always felt that way about everybody's lyrics. Mm -hmm. To be honest with you, 
I am like learning so much. I mean, that's actually why I named this EP Trial and Error. I wrote some songs because mm-hmm. I felt like there were some things I needed to say and I wanted to be able to sing them. What I've learned instead is like not how to sound engineer or produce anything, but like I've learned how to arrange things. I've learned what it takes to like schedule time in a studio. I learned how to build a website because I've never done that before. I learned how to build a one sheet today. I ended up doing the album art for both the EP and the single. I did that myself. I'm getting text messages from people who are like, hey, I can't buy anything at the store on your website. And I'm having to like chat with the website admins. All I wanted to do is make some music. (laughs) I'm learning how to be like a graphic designer and a publicist and a web designer. And that's just, it's part of it. Like that's just part of self-releasing. So all of that is to say, I didn't even know that you could include lyrics on the website. I'm now I'm going to have to go in there and start poking around and figure out how to get them to you when you download the music. So thank you for letting me know that that's a thing I can do. Oh, sure. Oh, totally. Oh, totally. (laughs) Because I'm learning like like every step of the way I'm learning like, oh, okay. Sometimes this doesn't load right. Hey, knowledge oh, okay. is power. You need a one. You need a one sheet. Great. Okay. <laughs> Let me just take a bunch of screenshots and see if I can't put something together. It's so funny yeah, you mentioned about one sheets and record labels. When I was in college, I interned for two record companies too. I interned for Alligator Records, which obviously is still doing well, but also Red Light Records, which mm-hmm. was a heavy metal label in Des Plaines that actually went out of business while I was interning for them. So that was an interesting experience. Educational in its own way. When I went to school and everything, it was always with the intent of starting my own record company, and it hasn't happened yet. I mean, it, it may never happen because the the whole business model has changed. But the one thing I did was, at the time that I made my resume, I also made a one-sheet advertising myself, and I even put SKUs from record companies, you know, the UPC at the bottom of it, and I hyped myself the same way that somebody might be hyping a record, and so didn't get me a job but it was a cool cool little promo piece for my budding totally career. totally so, and you learn how to put it together and you yeah. learn yeah yeah exactly so, didn't I, land but, I, <laughs> but you talked about how you worked in a record store i did as well i worked at the coconuts located so it was corporate but it was the coconuts record store in rogers park right there oh yeah, uh, yeah just yeah, yeah. just west of the Loyola campus so i worked there for like two and a half years but Retail in general gives you a lot of life experience you probably don't get in other careers. Yeah, retail and restaurants, right? I mean, that's what I did all through high school and college, retail and restaurants, retail restaurants and bartending. The good, the bad, and the ugly, it it does season you as a person. It does teach you a lot about human nature. Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. Didn't there used to be a Tower Records in Rogers Park too? Not in Rogers Park. It was Lakeview. It was at the corner of Clark and Belden, south of Fullerton. One traffic light south of Fullerton, you know, by the DePaul campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was right there. I'm blanking whether it was Fullerton or I'm going to say Fullerton. Just the cool thing about going to that record store, you would pay more, but their selection was wider. Like if I wanted to buy a Todd Rundgren album that was a little on the obscure side, but still in print, I know I could get it at Tower Records. The other thing that was cool about them, they were open till midnight. And so I would go there and know that, you know, we'd be out doing whatever, seeing a movie, hanging out. And me and my buddy would be like, hey, you want to go to Tower? And so we'd go to Tower records and right before midnight get our parking validated and get you know records and it was really fun but yeah. my one tower record memory and i will name names on this one because it was fun 
Do you know who Wes Hollywood is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I knew him back before he had a stage name. And so I went to Tower Records on the day that Elvis Costello's Brutal Youth album was released, you know, the Midnight album sale. And sure enough, there's Wes. And I'd, I'd known him from seeing him at other shows, and we had mutual friends. And I was like, wow, Wes, it's you. And and so we both bought our copy of Elvis Costello's Brutal Youth on the moment it was released to the world. And then he's like, you got a second? And so we hung out at his apartment and he is a record collector. And he had all of these wonderful records, you know, not only Elvis Costello, but Nick Lowe. And the man had and continues to have an amazing record collection. And I remember just going through and looking at him and we're both listening to this brand new Elvis Costello album that was just released that moment. And it was it's one of those moments that you always remember forever, that like the shared joy of finding a kindred spirit and both of you experiencing this album, which I still think is one of his best, being able to experience it for, for the very first time with somebody who totally got the specialness yeah. of it. Yeah, and those are the moments I'm talking about where it's like, it's not just synchronicity, like... I don't know, people come together and things line up and you it's not just like, oh, this record came out and I was really looking forward to it and I got yeah. it and it was great. It was like, and there was this other person there and I got to share yeah, it and the- that feels magical. Like things just sort of line up and oh, for yeah. a moment you're like, I kind of feel like I get it. And then tomorrow I'll go back to work and I'll wait for the next time that there's just this like magical coincidence. Those are the moments I'm talking about. At the risk of yeah. sounding like a fanboy, your song, um, first hearing it from me, was one of those moments. I had never heard a folk song that married that ethereal, ambient music on top of it. So in that sense, you have created a unicorn. You've created something completely original, which is the goal of it all, isn't it? Well, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it is for me. I don't know if right. creating something original is necessarily the goal. Maybe um, not the goal, but you... I just you, want to create something likable. I just want to create something relatable. And I want to create. Sure. I mean, yeah, of course. Absolutely. I would be lying if I said I didn't want it to be special. But I think more importantly, I want to create something that. I think more importantly, I need a pop filter. Um, I think more importantly, I want to. The pop filter is your friend. I'm I'm noticing that. I bought that when I bought the swing arm. It is your friend when it it comes to hitting those plosives. Yeah. I think more importantly, I want to create something. Kind of like what we were talking about earlier about Lydia Lovelace being honest and making me feel like I could too. About your child being honest and making other people feel like they could too. I want to I wanna create something that gives voice in a musical way. And to me, that's is synonymous for an emotional way mm-hmm. that allows somebody to feel comfortable in their own skin, in their own truth. Not everybody is a musician, but so many people respond to music. And so I'm not necessarily saying that I want to write an anthem in the traditional sense, but I, you know, definitely in in a metaphoric sense, an anthem that can speak for people who don't necessarily know if they have the words to say what, what they need to say for themselves. I get it. I think that's pretty special. Yeah. You know, if I could do that, I think that's pretty special. Did it for me. Well, again, that song wouldn't have been that. Mm-hmm. without Eric and without Eric's vision vision for it or whatever the audible version of vision is. <laughs> no, right, right, yeah. No, vision makes sense. When you dream, when you have a larger dream that you have for yourself, they call it having a vision even if the actual act of sight has nothing to do with it. You know, mm-hmm. it's the larger concept that you have and the ability to bring that to life in something tangible that people can actually listen to. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the best. That's the best. And that, you know, that's another one of those moments where two people come together and create something bigger. Oh, yeah. You know. There's an interesting saying that I heard once that applies to art that really is relevant. A song is never finished necessarily. It's only released. Mm-hmm. Yep. In its current iteration. And it will continue to evolve. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the path of your chosen miles my Aegis has no designs on you child all that I ever may require that you stay tender that you stay That song is Gypsy Prince from the EP Trial and Error by Lou Hennies. Explain your stance for this EP about deliberately not releasing a physical CD or LP of your music. Your website mentioned something to the effect about ecology factoring into it. Mm -hmm. Do you see that stance changing in the future? It's really three things. Number one, over the past couple of years, I've made an active and deliberate effort to reduce the use of plastic in my home. There are certain things that we can do and certain things that we can't do, but I feel like the more attention I pay to it, the more I notice just how unbelievably pervasive it is. You cannot buy groceries in this country and not just be like inundated with plastic. And the more and more I I learn about Recycling isn't really what we think it is, and it doesn't really work the way we think it should. And the more I'm learning about the plastic making its way into the oceans, like, I mean, there's a lot of things to be concerned about in terms of ecology and global warming and climate change. But I don't know, for me, the plastic thing is really, I got a real problem with plastic. For items that I think people tend to collect and not use very often. It doesn't seem like a good reason to sort of compromise on on my feelings about plastic. There are several people in my life who have expressed an interest in like purchasing the EP. You know, a lot of them are old friends and they're people that I know they want to support me, but I also know they're probably not going to put it on more than once or twice. Doesn't seem like a good reason to press anything, CD or vinyl. I know people like having a physical object. I know people like feeling like they're supporting local music or or independent music. I, I understand that. I do too. I did have a very extensive record collection. And after I moved it about 14 times, I got really tired of moving it and I took it all to uh, uh, Reckless and I sold it all, you know? So just just in an act of like decluttering and just not, I mean, I'm not a minimalist. I'm really not. But like, I don't need collections of things. And I'm not saying it, nobody else does, but but really nobody else does either. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I should show you the <laughs> I know, I know, I know. People are really proud of their record collections, and I understand that. I, I do. I just... But I your just... your take on it is very valid, too, even if it's revolutionary in its own way. Well, and then there's other elements in there too, right? Like I knew that this was a first EP and it it didn't make sense to spend the money to have it pressed. There are economies of scale. I mean, I was going to have to have like 2,000 of them pressed in order to make it make sense. And I knew I was probably going to sell 100 of them. I didn't want 1,900 pieces of plastic in my house. Like it's nice to have a physical thing, but like it's not worth it. So I suppose that could change at some point in time, but I doubt it that it will because I also... 
And I know that people are going to like at me, like, don't come at me about this, but I also just don't think people can press vinyl like they could in the seventies. I just don't, I don't think the quality is there. I don't, I think it's a, an art that sadly has kind of been lost. It do, if you put a record on that was released this year and then put a record on that came out in like maybe, maybe up until 1985, maybe up until 1990, you're going to hear a very distinct difference in, in the way that those records are mastered and pressed. I don't think the argument that the sound quality is so much better holds true anymore. I like to stream music. I like having it in my car. I like having it in my pocket. I like listening through headphones. I like to stream music and I just, I like to share it. You know, that's the other thing. Like when I'm streaming it, I want to be able to like fire it off to whoever it reminds me of at that time. I like making playlists. And I think, I think most of the people that I know do too. Most of the people that I know that are serious about music and listening to it all day long, like I am, do the same. I mean, we all use Spotify and we all know that we freaking shouldn't and we all do anyway. So to me, like having a physical CD or a vinyl wasn't really the emblem of making it as much as like having a Spotify profile was like Mm -hmm. that was such a like when I saw my face and name and the little blue check on Spotify, I felt like I've been initiated. That's Um, cool. And it felt really good, you know, and, and really I felt like, and I did it myself. I initiated myself into this club. So that influenced my, my decision not to print anything. I will say, I understand that people like to have a physical thing. And I understand that people, especially when we get to a point where hopefully there'll be more shows and tours and stuff, people really like to be able to, to go to the merch table and buy something and feel like they're supporting the artist. I understand that. There is a plan albeit a half-baked one, to print T-shirts. And my, the big thing for me is going to be totes because, again, because since if it were going to go anti-plastic, let's go all the way anti-plastic, and I'll print canvas grocery tote bags. And then they'll come with a download code. If somebody wants to buy something physical that they can take, they can buy something that can help reduce plastic usage and then get the music along with that too. And then I also think if they don't want to, if they don't want a physical thing, they, people sometimes people just don't want stuff with your name on it in their house, and I get it, we'll probably do like download cards that are like plantable that have like wildflower seeds in them. You can just like download it and then plant them. Wow. Um, <laughs> and those will probably be free or whatever. I don't know. Well, I got to think about it. To be fair, that's not an original idea. There was a band called The Handsome Family Band? No, that's a different band. That's no, that's, that's Rennie Sparks and uh, The Handsome Brett, Family Brett and Band. Rennie Sparks, right? I saw yeah, them in concert they, at Lounge once. Yeah, and they did the they did the theme song for, or their their song was used as the theme song for the first season of True Detective. Okay, I'm that makes thinking sense. I can see that. <laughs> of Hold on, I want to look it up. Yeah. There's a band from Yorkville, Illinois, that did this first. They did, oh man, what what are they called? I'm never going to remember the name. Let's see. It's in my library. Here's the other thing. I'm just going to go into Spotify, <laughs> and I'm going to look it up. Because... Lou Hanna has got back to me, and she told me that the name of the band that escaped her was the Giving Tree Band which appropriately enough for the name of the band had a download code card which you could plant and had seeds in it. Maybe I, maybe While I'll you're looking, I'll explain. I'll make a tiny case. I mean, what you're saying is very valid and I'm not trying to, to down it, but the only thing as a music lover, and, and I'm old school, I'm 48, so I'm 
my paradigms of music consumption are going to be by nature different than yours just because of the age gap. But for me, I have seen a lot of music be put, not a lot, but I mean, occasion, uh, notable occasions where music is up online and then all of a sudden it disappears. And Mm -hmm. if you were counting on that music to be there for you tomorrow, five years, 10 years from now, because it spoke to you, but you can't be for whatever reason, whether it's a record company dispute, whether it's the artist, like you said, the artist deciding, ah, I'm going to pull that for the world, which is the artist's prerogative. If you don't have, whether it's an MP3 on your hard drive or the record in your collection or the CD or the, take your pick, that very well could be lost to time forever, which in yeah. some cases would is okay. I mean, for certain, not to say some art is more important than others, but some art resonates with each of us differently than others. If the song Break My Stride by Matthew Wilde were to disappear, I wouldn't be heartbroken. But, you know, if something else did, I would be heartbroken. You know, all these little forgotten dusty parts of the past, sure, you can digitize them, and I've digitized many of them, but some of these records that I have will never, ever make it beyond their original format. And to have that as a relic of the past so that I can, in my own little way, you know, listen to it, digitize it so I can, you know, listen to it. It's a preservation aspect, I guess, that allows that song, at least for as long as I'm able to speak on its behalf, to not disappear into the sands of time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. I understand that. I mean, I think... That said, your stance on something also makes perfect sense, too, and it's just as valid as mine. I mean, I would hope that people do download it, if people do purchase it and download it, that they would have access to it. I mean, Right. right? Like we were just saying, I hope nothing happens to my hard drive. I hope nothing happens <laughs> yeah, to my phone. Too. Kiss that thing. Make sure it doesn't disappear on me. But right, I mean, you could say the same thing about like, well, I hope I don't have a fire and lose all my photographs. Like, right? Like, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so yeah, I understand. I understand. I mean, I think, I, I mean, I don't have a physical copy, right? I mean, the reason I... Of your own music, it's... Yeah, yeah, I don't. Wow. That's true. I don't. Yeah. I would have nothing to play it on. I don't even own a CD player. I, I don't think... Oh, there is still one in my car. There's still one in my car. You know, that's it too. It's like, okay, you're going to, you know, you're going to put it on a CD. Like, I don't even have a CD player. I do still have a record player. I can always play it for myself too. I don't know. True. And if you wanted that sense of temporary permanence for the irony inherent in that, you can burn it to a CDR for as long as it lasts on that CDR until it, you know, degrades and is no longer playable. Yeah, and then it's like William Brzezinski's disintegration loops. I don't know. Are you familiar with those? No. I'll send them to you. They're great. You have all of these wonderful references, you know, that that I I will fully admit I don't know yet, but it it, it makes you fascinated to to know what a disintegration loop is. Oh, man. No, I think it's Brzezinski. Yeah, it is. I don't know why I'm acting like I don't know. You should Google him. He just, just Googled the disintegration loops. I mean, you'll find his name, but he basically found like an old box of magnetized tape and he was playing them and he started to notice. There's a whole story. They've done like podcasts about this. He basically noticed that the magnet was like dis- literally disintegrating off the tape as he was running them through. And so he oh, managed wow. to record them and you you just hear the sound disintegrating and decaying like as you're listening they're beautiful they're really really lovely here is a sample of the disintegration loops by william Bazinski. it's really haunting stuff you can hear the loop being played over and over again and being degraded 
that is such a deep concept. It's almost like like those cartoons that you see of the cartoon character walking across a rope and plank bridge and then somehow the bad guy disconnects it from the side that they were just on and they have to run, 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 run to get to the other side as the bridge is falling into the chasm. It's a physical impossibility, but you have no choice but to go forward because behind you no longer exists. Yep. Wow. Yep. yep. Deep stuff. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's all connected. <laughs> Everything mm-hmm. we've been saying since the beginning of this interview. It's all connected. There's no, there's not one doubt in my mind that <laughs> it's all connected. The dance on you twirling Matilda's Waltz on you black diamond girls We will be waiting the reels of Virginia Welcoming lovers and That's another unreleased Lou Henai song taped off Instagram called Black Diamond Gals. What's next for you musically? How do you see music creation, its distribution, and live performance changing in a post-pandemic world? What kind of things do you hope to see for the music community, both locally in your own circle of musical peers, geographic area, whatever, and maybe more globally? What's your take on how things either will change or have to change? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Right. And that's the scary thing. I think and I and I don't think I'm alone. I I don't think any of us know anymore. I, I don't think any of us have a sense of the landscape. I think one thing we've learned as music lovers and as music creators is that this idea of like, like an Instagram live Patreon world. I think Patreon's beautiful. I think there's a place for it. And I think when we're in a quote unquote normal, you know, pre slash post pandemic life, I think the ability to add content to Patreon will improve. But I think what we've learned is this idea that we're going to do like internet concerts was cute for about 30 days. And then people got sick of it. Like it's not (laughs) fun. It's just watching something else on TV, you know, on television, on our computers. I think people really struggled to like it was the it was just the most bizarre phenomenon like despite the fact that everybody was home and everybody was like a captive audience like Literally. we could we couldn't get anybody to pay attention to what we were doing and we certainly couldn't get anybody to pay us to pay attention to what we were doing and I think in part because now you're up against actual television right like and I think we what we learned is that part of what people love about music and about live music is there's an energy that just cannot be communicated via Zoom via Instagram via screens there's a smell and and it's there's something about being in a crowd of other people who like the same thing that you like and the potential that you might run into somebody that you know or meet somebody new get a chance to chat with the band afterward or whatever without all of that it just all felt really really flat and, and myself included like it was about two months into the pandemic before i was like i'm just kind of over and, and it was the weirdest thing because i thought when it started and i thought all my favorite artists are going to be on instagram and i'm just going to be able to watch concerts all day long i thought it was going to be the coolest and i could not believe how quickly i got sick of it right so that's the one thing we we did learn is that people really want to go out i think this summer is going to be cuckoo bananas i think people are so desperate to get out and play and people are so desperate to get out and see live music 
it's almost like a frenzy. Honestly, I don't even really think it's going to be pleasant. I think it's okay. So part of the reason that people didn't want to watch live music on Instagram over the last year is because we've, we're all depressed. The people who were making it were depressed and the people who were watching it were depressed. And there was no, it was just a constant stream of screen time. And you know, when you're living in a cave with a screen, nothing is very exciting. So now what we're going to see, or what I think we are already seeing, is the backlash of that, which is just this, like, it's almost like we're feral children who are being let out of our caves, and kind of nobody knows how to behave anymore, and no, nobody remembers what manners are, and I think it's just put, put alcohol into that, and people are just going to be like, I need to drink all the beers, and act badly, poor, act poorly in public, and I think it'll be fun, like, I'm looking forward to it, for sure, after being home all year, but I think it's going to be a little rough around that. It's going to take us a minute to kind of come back into civilized company. Then what comes on the, in the third year? I don't know. I don't really know. I don't really know what the response to like a year of nothing and then a year of too much is going to be. Like it could be somewhere in the middle. We could kind of just end up back at where we were. Or I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of just like keep trying to keep an open mind about it. With respect to myself, I'd go on tour. Nobody wouldn't, right? There's There are very few musicians who are like, no, I don't want to go on tour. Like we all do. We all want to play out and play for people and play for audiences and stuff. It's, it's the troubadour. It's the yeah, right? and it's, going out and sharing your experiences with the world. And connecting with people and having new, yeah, having new experiences. And I mean, I love performing. I love performing. I loved performing as a child. I, I was a dancer. I was about in ballet as a child. I loved performing. I love public speaking. I love doing interviews and podcasts. I love being on stage. Like, yeah, I would do that all day long. Absolutely. But right now, I can't even hardly book anything because everybody is so hungry to get out there and whatever. And I don't even not, I don't even want to, I don't care enough about it to like, I'm not going to fight people. I, I mean, I'll hustle a little bit, but I've, you know, I've got a job and a kid right now. So it's like, it's okay if I wait another year. So I think that until things like just settle, just everybody just needs to settle down a little bit. So I think the focus for me this year, just being able to like be face to face again Eric and I collaborated on this EP and there's eight more songs that'll come out probably over the course of this year that he and I and Sarah and Eric Molly all collaborated on. But so I think the focus for me musically and creatively this year is going to be just taking advantage of the fact that I can be in a room with other musicians and maybe like singing and playing and writing with other musicians and just kind of getting back into that like folk jam mentality. I would really like to go spend some more time back at Old Town. I haven't been there, you know, in almost two years now and just play with other people. And, and I've got some work to do on my voice. I mean, there's always work to do. I'm not, it's not to put myself down, but I, there are some control and some range things that I could be working on and mostly harmonies to be working on learning harmonies. And I would really, really love to do a duet project, but it's just a matter of finding the right person. And sometimes that works out and some it's, it's no different than marriage. If you find somebody that you can do a duet project with, that's a pretty special thing. It doesn't happen all the time. So, but if that opportunity were to present itself, I would be really excited about that. What I'm still writing and we're still recording. So yeah, I don't know. I'm really excited to see what kind of the synchronicities and the opportunities. I'm really excited to see what presents itself as we all start kind of coming out of our caves and peeking our heads out and saying, do you want to hang out? Do you want to play? Do you want to sing? 
that's the thing I'm the most excited about this summer. Cause the last time I saw you was Chicago And things have changed for both of us by then But I love you were the last words you said to me And I never heard from you again Oh, I never heard from you again Lord, I'd love to hear from you up and be my man. That's Lou Hennies singing her song, Sing With Me Again. Lou Hennies, I want to really, really thank you for speaking with me today. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts, and, and I really hope that everything goes well, because I'll definitely be listening to the music as you make it. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure to do. I really, really appreciate you having me on your show. Absolutely. It's, it's been a pleasure having you on it. That's it for this week's Famous Cat Chronicle. Thank you so much to Lou Hennies for sitting down with me for hours and hours and giving me so much wonderful material to choose from, but also for being patient for me for having it take so long to be released. But the proof is in the pudding. I'm glad we spent the extra time needed for this. Stick around. We're going to be hearing more from Lou Hennies as she goes through some of the artists that have inspired her, brought her joy. Lou Hennies herself will be playing in concert two solo shows at the Montrose Saloon, one on Saturday, June 12th at 6 in the evening, the other on July 25th at 5 in the evening. Montrose Saloon is located at 2933 West Montrose Avenue in Chicago. Hope to see you there. Stick around for more guests also on the Famous Cat Chronicle. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Thomas Durkin, and we'll see you next time. That one might be the keeper. Yeah.